So I had a science teacher in high school who had this sign posted on his desk. It said this, entropy in action. Entropy in action. When a student would be foolish enough to ask him what did that sign mean, he would explain it this way. He said, he would quote the second law of thermodynamics, which says that entropy or intrinsic disorder in a system will always increase with time. So what that meant is if you came into his room and you had a paper that was signed by a parent, you had homework that was late, you had anything that you wanted to give to him and you put it on that desk of chaos, there was very little chance that you were going to get credit for it because this desk was an example of entropy in action. Entropy in action. Do you ever look around these days and realize and think, what a mess. How did the world get this way? How did God allow this to happen? God, where are you? Is this really your plan for me? Is this your plan for all of our lives? Things don't seem to be getting better. They seem to be getting worse. When we look around and we we look at the stuff that's going on in our worlds, it's hard not to think these thoughts. If you're just joining us, watching us online, if you're coming in uh, later listening to our podcast, my name is Pastor Milo. You're here at Randall Church. We're glad that you made it. You are going to need a Bible this morning. We're going to be in Esther chapter 2. So if you haven't already, you can look in your pew Bibles. You can use a digital device. Get yourself there to Esther chapter 2. It's a small book. It's hard to find sometimes. Hit the book of Psalms. Uh, That's usually in the center when you open things up and hang a left a couple of books Esther chapter 2, and I'll stall while you get there, okay? Esther chapter 2. In many ways, we could could all kind of put a sign on the dashboard of our lives as we're looking out into the world and say, this is entropy in action. When you look at the way that your life goes, the way that, that life seems to be lived here on this planet, it just seems like chaos abounds, And that's the very reason why Esther is such an important story for us to look at. Not only is it one of the most riveting stories that we have in all of Scripture, but it's a story primarily written so that we can see the hidden hand of God at work in this world. It's a story written primarily to the Jewish people. So they would know that God's promises were true. Uh, this was as a time that would be described easily as a state of confusion, but certainly a season of mess for the Jewish people. As you mentioned last week, as we opened up this book, this is the only book in all of the scriptures that we have where God is not named or mentioned even once in this entire book. But this is actually there in the secret for us to understand why this book exists. Because even though God, when we are in the middle of our mess, seems at a distance, He's actually present every step of the way. And even though He's always behind us, always playing that soundtrack song that we talked about last week, this supporting uh, harmony, producing and, and, and helping us realize that God is prov- providentially ordering things for the good of His people, working behind the scenes in subtle ways, He's there to show us that He is still here. The book of Esther, if you need to summarize this theme, it is written to encourage God's people that God keeps His promises. It encourages God's people that God will keep His promises and that He is there to protect His people. 
This story is actually written specifically, you'll see at the end of the book, you'll notice that there is this, this festival called Purim. And actually, so this is like the backstory for people who are, who are learning why are we celebrating, why are we having this festival, this backstory is written. So they know, they said, well, this is why the festival exists. And it tells the story of Esther and how the celebration came to fact and how God saves and God rescued his people. Esther is jam-packed with all types of drama and seemingly coincidental situations. And it just doesn't make sense as you were reading it outside of the guiding hand of God. And as we read through this particular story and begin interacting with this book of Esther over the next number of weeks, you will find, I believe, this to be one of the most relevant books that we could be reading as we were looking out that dashboard of our lives. So I want to help take us from the point of reading this story and saying, wow, that's an interesting story from a long time ago, and getting to a point where we realize, no, that's an incredibly relevant passage for us to be able to see and understand and look through the lens through of how we process our lives today. Last week we looked at chapter 1. We're introduced to some of the main characters uh, we're going to see throughout the book. We're introduced to King Xerxes. Uh, He reigned for only about 20 years, from 485 B.C. to 464 B.C. This man is super wealthy, and he wants everyone to know it. He's had some uh, misfortunes, you could call them, in battles and in wars, and I don't recommend it necessarily, but the storyline of the movie 300 is built around his absolute misfortune and collapse. But he's coming back now. He's on the return tour. He's on his feet and he wants everyone else to know. He wants them all to recognize how wealthy and how powerful and how awesome he is. And so he throws a party. The almighty king of Persia is going to throw a party for 180 days to make sure everybody comes, everybody sees how mighty, how powerful he is. But the reality is he is a weak, he is a frail man, he is insecure, He is easily manipulated by the very people who are supposed to be protecting him. So just as an aside, as we go through passages of Scripture like this, we go through various books of the Bible, particularly when it's a narrative story like this, and you are hearing these stories play out, be careful not to read it like a religious person. Let me explain that. Be careful not to read it like a religious person. Religious people will read this passage and they say, okay, here are the good people and here are the bad people. I want to be like the good person and I don't want to be like the bad person. The reality is when we open up Scripture, we need to look at it through one lens. There are bad people, there are sinful people, and there is Jesus. There are bad people, sinful people, and there is Jesus. There is no other category but that. That's how we ought to read the Bible. And as we look at this passage today, we're going to meet some people, Xerxes, Mordecai, Esther, and they're going to all have some failures, some faults, some flaws. This is what the sin nature does in this world, but we're going to look how God interacts in each of their lives. So King Xerxes, like I just said, is in all of his splendor. He is an insecure Man, the reality when we look at King Xerxes, if you take a step back for just a second, you'll recognize that you see a picture of yourself in the mirror. You don't want to say it, you don't want to admit to it, but his is being displayed for everyone on the big screen. If you or I had our lives displayed on the big screen, all of our insecurities, all of our sins, all of our faults, and all of our flaws played for all to see, you'd find that you weren't so different 
from him. All of us are easily tempted. All of us are easily deceived. We all need God's word. We all need God's spirit. We all need one another as spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ because we are all easily manipulated by sin and the sin nature. King Xerxes is the Greek version of his name, and then King Ahasuerus is the Hebrew version of his name. So depending on which English translation you have in your laps here this morning, it could be written either way as King Xerxes or King Ahasuerus. King Ahasuerus is what the Hebrews called him, and this was a bit of a play on words. That word is loosely translated as King Headache or King Split-Minded. This was their king. It's not a flattering name for him, but it's a pretty apt description of him. You'll see a man who is easily swayed by the whims and other advisors and other people around him and doesn't really think through a lot of the steps of what he is doing. So now if you've made your way there, chapter 2, Esther chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, says this, later, when King Xerxes, his fury had fully subsided, sometime later, He remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Sometime later, different translations say this a little bit different, but some time has passed. If you add the numbers up, it's about four years that have passed. So have you ever had one of those situations where you're angry, you're frustrated, you're grumpy, and so you do what most of us do when you're angry and you're frustrated and you're grumpy. You make a foolish decision. You're irritable, and you made a dumb decision out of anger. Have you done that? Yes, we all have, right? If you don't think that you have, the person who knows that you have, then after a while you think, man, that was actually a pretty bad idea. Or, man, I didn't respond the way that I should have. And just as, as we begin here, it's, it's a caution to us, a reminder for us to think about the decisions that you make and that we make when you're angry, when you're irritable. You should be really careful about the conversations that you have when you're upset. You should be really careful about clicking send on that email before you think through it. Maybe you should put it in a draft folder for just a moment before you send it on its way. Some of you on social media need to be careful about what you are posting out there. The first thing that comes to your mind, maybe you better breathe for a moment. Maybe you better wait for a second. Because that conversation you're having with your spouse, that conversation you're having with your kids, maybe you're making some bad decisions because you're angry. Well, it took Xerxes four years to realize the decision that he had made and that it was a bad idea. Four years after he loses his temper, divorces his wife, and he wakes up one day sobbing and crying in his royal bathtub listening to country music, he realizes what he's done. She's never coming back. The woman that he loves But it's Persian law, and therefore, the way that the Persian law was written, it could not be taken back. It could not be changed. It could not be modified. And he's got no one to console him. He's totally depressed. The great, pathetic King Xerxes. When King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti. This is the wife that he had divorced. He's like, oh, I miss my wife. Well, you shouldn't have divorced her, maybe she would be around. How many of you have done that? 
you've been in a relationship, you've been dating someone, you've married someone, you have this long-lasting relationship, you get frustrated, you get angry, and then all you do is just cut the relationship off. You get rid of them. I heard a stand-up comedian the other night make a joke about this. He said, have you ever gotten a divorce and realized later what you should have gotten was a sandwich? Whoopsie-daisies. This is not just entropy in action. This is sin on display. This is sin on display. Sin on display for all to see. Why did he break up with Vashti? Why did he divorce his wife? She told him no because he was wrong. This is the queen of Persia, Persia, and she refuses to be treated like the property of the king. We looked at this briefly last week where the drunken king Xerxes, he, he expected her to come out and to dance seductively for him in little or no clothing at all with her crown on in front of all of the court nobles, parade around in skimpy clothes, and she says, no, I'm not going to do that so that people can leer at me. So if he would have repented, Xerxes could probably have kept his wife. He had a choice. You've always got a choice when it comes to sin. You can get to keep your spouse or keep your sin. You can keep your spouse or you can keep your sin. Xerxes, he, he, he chose to keep his sin. And what follows here, the rest of chapter 2, are the results of that decision. Let's continue on, verse 2. The king's personal attendants proposed, Let a search be made for a beautiful young virgin for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and therefore he followed it. So rather than just giving us the simple facts of the story, today's passage that we're covering is 18 verses. The narrative goes into great detail to help us understand the circumstances in the situation. He could have just shared it in a few verses, but it's important that we understand that because the narrative could have told us this very quickly, but he doesn't. And you have to look at that and say, well, why doesn't he? Why do we get all of this detail? He gives us this detail so that we can understand that God is at work, even though this is a great mess. A great God is at work, even in the middle of a great mess. As you're reading this, you have to stop for a moment and think about, if you will, what is taking place. I said that sin was on display. And when sin is on display, when the world is broken, what is it that you will see? You will see, and we will see sinful people, we will see broken people attempting and trying to erase fault. Erasing fault. Vashti is going to be replaced. She is going to be erased. There will be a new queen. Now, we don't need to get too intense and too graphic in the story, but you need to realize this morning that this is not even a PG-13 passage. 
This is a very difficult passage. There's a lot of mess here. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of sorrow. And if we read through it too quickly in a story like this, we move on and don't realize and recognize what's actually happening. You're going to miss the mess that is the darkness that God is still present in. We see the king is here, and he is sorrowful, and he is sad, and the servants try to help them. They try to come around him, and and he's so upset with his mistake, but they don't try to make him go back and correct the wrong. They try to erase history, erase fault, give him a new wife, start over, pretend it never happened. Verse 4, this advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Well, of course it appeals to the king. This king is satisfied by indulging in and all of his sinful desires, all of his lustful desires that he has. He's going to have a new queen in the castle, and all of his errors will be erased in his mind. What you see here is you kind of dig under the surface, you get a picture of the culture that Esther lives in, where everybody lives to please the king. And she doesn't, and no one else does either, belong to herself. No, you belong to him. You were not your own. You were his possession. Even her own body belongs to the king. And what takes place here, remember, they have been taken out of their land, just like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, all taken as slaves out of their own land, and now they are serving Persia against their own will. The edict is made that if you are attractive and you are of marital age, you now belong to the king. If you are attractive and you are of marital age, 15, 16, 17 in this time frame, you now belong to the king. And these men, now, they're going to go out throughout the kingdom. They are going to treat these young girls like commodities or, or public domain, if you will, or whatever other way you want to describe this trafficking that is happening. And they're going to pick them and rip them away from their families and tell them, you're coming with us. And this happened to hundreds, possibly even thousands of young girls, all to please the sick desires of this Persian selfish king. Now, as you begin to understand the story, it should make you sick to your stomach. The realization of what goes on. It should be a wake-up call to the tendency we have to sanitize the book of Esther. We've got in our minds the Sunday school version of this story, and there's a reason why that version is what's told in our Sunday schools. There's too much to deal with here for a child. However, we cannot We cannot do that as adults. We cannot look at this passage and miss and gloss over what is actually happening here. This is a horrible event. This is a story of trafficking, a story of victimization of the entire population of people. By the end of the book, you will see that because of the brokenness of sin, because of the the damaging power of the sinful heart and the selfish desires of a man hungry for power, there's a calculated plan to erase and exterminate an entire population of people, the Jews. We have a tendency to read through something like this really quickly. And even when we realize what's happening, and then we say, how could a culture ever treat people like that. Don't be mistaken. Don't be mistaken that somehow, in some way, that this no longer exists in our world. 
that it no longer exists where young women are taken out of their homes and sold as slaves. Don't for a moment think that the abuse of young women has ended and that the lustful gratification for powerful men in the world to abuse young women has somehow disappeared and that we are in somehow more of a modern society where this no longer happens. That simply is not true. Just as offended and angry as this passage should make you, it should shake you up to our culture now. In our day, in our age, this is still happening. We partner and work with many ministries and agencies that combat this every single day. And not just in places that are very far away from us. It's happening in our backyard. It's happening on Craigslist and the marketplace. or Whatever the newest way to traffic young girls is taking place. And the church cannot be caught pretending that this isn't going on. That's the extreme. Now there's even the the more socially acceptable versions of this type of abuse is also going on. There's a billion dollar pornography industry in our country. A billion dollar industry. And it dominates our culture and the church should be able to do something about it. Should be able to speak to that. Should be able, if nothing else, to give hope to those who are struggling in this area of your life. If you are struggling with this, you need to realize and know that there is help to be found in God's, in God's Word. And that there's, there's, there's a place where Satan would want you to keep this hidden, want you to keep it hidden forever and ever, keep it in dark where no one else can see it, and yet God wants you to bring things out into the light. And by doing so, he says, the truth will set you free. You will find freedom and you will find forgiveness. Evil still exists, abuse still exists because sin still exists. And just as sick as it was then, it's still sick today because the world has not changed. This is the world that Esther is living in, in an abusive and unjust world, sinful world, and it's a broken world that we live in as well. In verse 5, we are introduced to Mordecai. Mordecai enters the scene, and we start to see the way that God's hand is at work. Verse 5, Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew in the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried off into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. So Nebuchadnezzar should be familiar to you again. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Verse 7, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, same person, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and her mother died. Now the author tells us all kinds of stuff about Mordecai. He tells us important things for us to pay attention to because it's really important we understand who this guy is, first of all. We learn that he is Mordecai, a Jew. He puts that out there first to begin things. And it's important because he's the tribe of Benjamin, it tells us. And if this is important, you know history, if you know our biblical history at all, we are in the Old Testament now, but we're going to take ourselves to the New Testament eventually. And Benjamin is the tribe that becomes very significant in the Bible because it's the tribe from which Messiah is born. See, if the Jews had been wiped out entirely, and specifically all the Jews in the tribe of of Benjamin had been wiped out, there would be no coming Messiah. There would be no coming King. There would be no virgin birth. There would be no Jesus, no manger, no tomb, no cross, no resurrection. None of that happens. There would be no Christ. We learn here that Mordecai 
is Esther's cousin. He's adopted her, and now she's an orphan again. I mean, he's adopted her. For whatever reason, we just skip over this, but let's recognize the fact that, that her parents are gone, and therefore he needs to adopt her. This is the broken world that she lives in. She's already been abandoned and left once. And now she's being forced and torn away from this again. She has a home. She has a family with Mordecai. And she's being ripped from that. But let's not mistake the hidden hand of God in this. Verse 8. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was one of them. She was taken to the king's palace and trusted to Haggai, who was in charge of the harem. Verse 9, she pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned her to seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. We learn that she is beautiful. It says that the young woman had a beautiful figure and that she was lovely to look at. Her beauty fits into the story, and God has created her exactly as he desired for his glory and for his purposes. Again, this is the reminder for us that God made you and He made me exactly as He intended to make you. But when sin is on display, when the world is broken, what do we see? We see sinful people. We see broken people doing what? Defining beauty. Defining beauty. Now, in our culture, you'll find that you'll see that you'll need to be different, and you need to be this, you need to be that, you need to be other things, you need to be shorter, you need to be taller, you need to be stronger, you need to be better looking, you need to have this color hair or that color hair, whatever. A broken world's going to tell you that you're not perfect, that you're not the way you were intended to be. But God is going to tell you He made you exactly how He desired you to be. He made Esther how he wanted her to make. And yet, the ridiculous fact is that now she's going to be pushed through some quote-unquote beauty treatment with a special food so that she can be beautiful before, according to the standards of a broken and sinful world. Verse 10, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai forbid her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Most scholars believe that he had some type of formal role there in the courtyard, that he, just like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, that that he had been brought in as well because of his intelligence, because of his ability to see and hear and strategize things. That's why he was there. That's why he was able to keep checking in on her. Verse 12, before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, this is the plan. She had to complete a 12-month beauty treatment prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh, and six the perfumes and cosmetics. So this 12 months of training, if you will, of how to be beautiful included uh, some type of aromatherapy where they're actually getting them in a room constantly six months worth so that their, their skin literally smelled the way that it was supposed to smell. Verse 13, and this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted that she needed was given to her, take with her from the harem to the king's palace. If you're not picking up on it, this is a dark, dark, dark situation and circumstance. And yet the narrative tells us that God's grace is still present. He does it in a very subtle way. You've got to stop for a moment, remember, realize what is taking place. 
These women are all being ripped, torn out of their homes, being told they are never going back. They're being taken out of their homes as 15, 16, 17-year-old girls. They'll be put into a system that they will be taught, they will be trained how to please the king. And you can imagine what is meant by those words. But the narrator also tells us in a very subtle way, and he does this in a word that he uses that's called the word favor. This Hebrew word for favor is, is, is used as the loyalty of God. This is use, useful when, when God is this covenant that he has with his people. And he talks about the favor that he shows Israel. In the New Testament, we, we translate that word as grace, God's grace that is translated there. So the narrator is just giving us this subtle hint and saying that while Esther is in this dark place, this dark time, God's presence, God's favor is still there. Esther is not the hero in this story. At this point where we are today in chapter 2, she is the victim in this story. But even later when she becomes queen, Esther is still not the hero, friends. God is the hero. God is the one who is moving and, and moving things through. Because here, she must follow orders. She must eat the foods that she wasn't allowed to eat. She must disobey God's law. She may have to worship in settings, in pagan settings, in situations that she would not normally do. But somehow she must do these things so that she can hide her identity and do all the things. She's becoming Persian. So she would not ever be seen as a Jew. It's important to the story. But it's also important that we understand that Esther is not Daniel. She is not taking the same stand. She's not standing up to the Persian king at this moment. She's succumbing to everything that she is being told to do. Everything that's taken place in her life. And there's nothing she can do about it. And yet, God has grace. Shows favor to her during this time. Verse 14. In the evening she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shazgaz, I think. The king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When sin is on display, when the world is broken, what do we see? What we see is sinful people, broken people, assigning value. Assigning value. If he was pleased with her or summoned her by name. They would go in, these young women would go in, they would spend one night with the king, and if he didn't want them, they would be left. They would not be returned back to the harem. And specifically, if you are one who is wanted, you are moved from the harem of young virgins to be moved to the harem of concubines. The second harem where the people would be used by the king whenever he wanted them as well. Whatever pleasures he wanted, whatever ways he wanted to abuse them, it would, it would not be a case where they were getting to go back to their homes. They were going to continue to live in this darkness. That's what's taking place here. And so for one night, they would enter a young girl, and the next day they would leave a concubine for the king. That's the language that's being used here. The narrator tells us what we need to know without telling us all of the details of what we need. But the scene is dark, and it's hard to imagine a darker scene in this private sinful nature of what's going on. But this is the reality of the darkness of humanity and the darkness. And in this darkness, God is still present. Verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abahal, 
to go into the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And by doing so, Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. Verse 16, she was taken to King Xerxes in his royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So this dark scene, this, this, this young Jewish girl goes into a Gentile king to please him for a night, and by doing so she earns his favor, and now that narrative gives us that word again, his favor, that somehow even in the midst of this mess, in this darkness, God's grace is still present. She wins the favor of the king himself, and we rejoice, Right? I mean, that's what we do, because we read through this passage, we read through it quickly, we get to the last part, and we get excited. We say, well, he made her king, we rejoice, she's king, this is, this is great, this is wonderful, right? That God is going to use that, He's going to use her and her position to protect the people, and it's all going to turn out great in the end. But we want to skip through and read it too quickly, because it's in this middle part, right here in the middle of the story. Because some of you are going through some stuff right now. You are in the middle of the mess. You are in the middle of the darkness. In the middle of the valley. And you are being told that you don't get help until you're on the other side. But that's not what the Bible teaches. In the middle of all of this. In the dark. In the evil. In the mess. God is present. And the king gave a great banquet. They called it Esther's banquet for all his nobles, all his officials. He claimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. This is a huge festival on its throne for the new queen, Esther. Or is it? Or is it? See, now you see the evil plan of those who are manipulating the work of Xerxes by handling exercises for their own gain. This whole charade, this whole beauty pageant, all of its craziness, all the work that it was for them so they could get what they wanted out of them. All throughout the provinces there was distributed gifts with royal liberality. They all benefited from this. When sin is on display, when the world is broken, what do we see? We see sinful people. We see broken people chasing after glory. Chasing glory. There's evil in the world. And when you look at passages like this, this is what we try to do. When you, when you see this in Scripture, when you see this in the world, and if you haven't picked up on it yet, you read this brokenness and you see that this, this world is broken. This world is sinful. And if you don't come to grips with that and you don't think about that, then it's not going to make sense to you. You're going to try to think if there's evil. You're going to try to think, well, if we could just educate people, then that would make better choices or better circumstances. If we could just do X, Y, and Z, and then things would improve. Things would get better. We'd all sing by on. We'd all drink Coca-Cola together, and it would be fine. Everything's going to be fine. It's not going to be fine. This world is affected by sin, and no one is immune to it. We see clearly Esther is affected by sin. Mordecai is affected by sin. Everyone in this story is affected by sin. And guess what? So are you and so am I. The story is a reminder to us. Until we recognize the power and the presence of sin in this world, we're not going to be aware of our need, our desperate need for God. 
We need a redeemer. We need a rescuer. What we need is a better king. We need a better king. Whereas the first step of coming to Jesus Christ is recognizing that you are a sinner. When you recognize that if you've never acknowledged that you were a sinner before and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, one day I hope that you will. Because you're going to come face to face with that better king. You're going to come face to face with the one who is pure, the one who is righteous and will not tolerate sin. When you stand before a righteous king, a better king, I pray that you would not face him apart from knowing Jesus as your Lord and Savior because that's what you need to be able to stand in front of a better king. But that's the good news of the gospel is that you don't have to. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus made a way for you to stand before a holy God so that you could come, become righteous in Him. Not through your own efforts, not through your own words, not through your own actions, but through what Christ did on your behalf and mine. What is Son, Jesus Christ. He would live in your place, is what we read in Scripture. He would live a perfect, righteous life that you could not live. And then He would die in your place and mine for your sins and for mine. If you put your faith in Him, you put your trust in Him, you'll be rescued from sin, saved to eternal life. This is the good news of the story of the gospel. The story of Esther is not just this. This is a, a small part of a grand story that's being told. A grand story that starts in Genesis with original sin and ends in Revelation where there is a king standing over a new kingdom. There's a better king. There's a better kingdom than all the kingdoms of this world. As the band comes forward, as we finish our time here this morning, we'll sing in just a moment a song you should be familiar with, Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. When we realize that the world is broken, when we realize that sin corrupts everything, we need a better king, we need a better kingdom, we need a better hope. A better hope. Romans 15, 13 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You will not come to this hope on your own. Because there will be one more crisis where we see brokenness in the world. It will be one more thing, one more desperate move that's around you that you realize that the world is broken and you're going to fall again into desperation and you'll lose hope but it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. I will fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you will abound in hope. So what Jesus Christ has done for you and for me. This is the good news of the gospel. We are going to go through the rest of the book of Esther, but do not move too quickly through chapter 2. If you bow your head and close your eyes, we'll close in prayer this morning. Dear Lord, there is brokenness all around us. There is pain. There is suffering. There is hurt. There are people who are damaged every single day in our community and communities around the world. And yet you are at work. The beautiful thing of the cross, Lord, is that you did something once at one time for all of time. And so this morning, if there's anyone in here that does not know you, has not put their personal faith and trust in you, Lord, as the rescuer, the restorer of all things that are broken, Lord, I pray that today would be the day. 
that they would say, that you would say, Jesus, I, the Bible says I am a sinner. I believe it. The Bible says I cannot save myself. I believe it. The Bible says if I confess my sin to you, you are faithful and just to forgive. Lord, I ask you for my forgiveness today. I accept your free gift, the payment for my sin. If you are here this morning, you are a believer, you know Jesus. You need a better hope. If you're getting distracted, getting pulled away by sinners, broken people acting like sinners, acting like broken people, of course they are. Let us put our focus on Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.